We'll start with a question, which I'll try to ask you in a couple of different ways. Is God high and exalted, or is he accessible to ordinary people like you and me? Is he above and beyond us, or is he among us? Is he separate from us, or is he with us? Those are very important questions to ask. And they're important because the way we answer those questions is going to affect the way we, the way we relate to God. If we say that he's high and exalted and above and beyond and separate from us, then we might have no trouble grasping his holiness and his power, but we might struggle to see how he could love us and care for us. On the other hand, if we say God is accessible to us and among us, then we will probably be pretty confident of his love and his care. But we might not be quite so sure about his power and his control. If God is above us, can he really know and love us? If God is with us, can he really be counted on to rule the universe? The way we answer those questions affects our daily lives. It affects the way we pray. And the passage we're going to look at this morning gives us a lot of help with these questions that we've just been asking. We're in the book of 1 Kings. And this morning, we're going to pick up at chapter 8, verse 1. If you're turning to that, you'll find it on page 344 or in the larger print church Bibles, page 529. Last week we heard about Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem. No expense was spared for that project. The very best of materials were used. Solomon even imported cedar wood all the way from Tyre. It had to be floated down the sea and then carried across the land. And thousands upon thousands of workers quarried out high-grade stone for the foundation. And then when it was almost done, the whole interior of the temple was covered in gold, even the floor. No corners were cut, not just with the materials, but with the details of the temple. Solomon hired the very best craftsman in the business. And that man's designs were intricate from the palm trees and the flowers that were carved onto the walls and then covered in gold to the 400 bronze pomegranates that were made to decorate the top of the high pillars. Who would even ever have seen those? But the detail everywhere was careful and intricate. And finally, after seven years of hard work, The temple is ready. It's ready to be lived in because it is a house. But it's not going to be lived in by Solomon. It's not going to be lived in by the priests. This temple is going to be lived in by the God of the universe. So with that in mind, we're going to pick up at chapter 8, verse 1, and read all the way through to verse 53. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the chiefs of the Israelite families, 
to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned round and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple. But your son, your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven, and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised it, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? 
the heavens. Even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the prayer and the cry that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, the place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty and bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you, and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven. And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. And send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes on the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come. And when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts, and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and act, deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, And when they pray to the Lord towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul, in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and pray to you towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, 
and uphold their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offenses they have committed against you. And cause their captors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servants' plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance. Just as you declared to your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. This is God's word. This passage deals with the dedication of the temple. But it's not really about the temple. It's about God. And it tells us two very significant truths about God. He is God with us, and he is also God above and beyond us. First of all, in verses 1 to 21, he is God with us. But the very start of chapter 8 might be a little bit confusing to us, because verse 1 says, if you look back to it, King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. Now we might wonder, isn't the city of David Jerusalem? Isn't Zion just another name for Jerusalem? And isn't that where Solomon has just built the temple? So why are we told here he's going to bring the Ark up from the city of David to the temple? Well, the answer is Solomon extended the city of Jerusalem. The temple and the palace Solomon built were outside the walls of David's city. They're actually up on a higher spot than David's city. So the ark really did go up from the city of David. Solomon's Jerusalem was more than double the size it had been in David's time. So don't worry about the details of this picture, but in that box we have what was the city of David. And this was added later during the time we're reading about now in Solomon's reign. But as we read verse 1, we might have another question. What is this ark that's being moved to the temple? Well, it's a wooden box overlaid with gold, something like that. And by this time, the ark is close to 500 years old. It was built after the exodus from Egypt, and it was built at God's command. It was built according to God's design. Inside the ark were two stone tablets inscribed with the Ten Commandments. Those tablets were a sign of God's commitment to his people, his covenant with them. The two figures on top of the ark represent angelic beings called cherubim. And God told Moses when the ark was originally built, above the cover, between the two cherubim, I will meet with you. So the ark is not a magic charm. It's not like a big rabbit's foot. It's the place where God himself promised to meet his people. The Israelites carried it through the desert and it has been with them ever since. 
Sometimes in their history they forgot about the ark. Sometimes they ignored it. On one occasion it was even stolen by Israel's enemies. But during David's reign it was brought to Jerusalem and now Solomon brings it on up to the temple. And he chooses to do that during a festival period. This was an annual event called the Feast of Booths. It celebrated the end of Israel's years wandering around in the desert. So it was a celebration of God giving them rest. What better time to bring the ark to rest in the temple? Verse 2 tells us all the Israelites came together for this. So it's not just those who normally live in Jerusalem. People from all over the country have piled into the city for this. It's a big event. There's a big procession. As well as the ark, it seems the tabernacle tent is being carried. That's where the ark had been housed during those years of travel for Israel. It must have been pretty ragged by this stage. But it just adds to the significance of this big parade. The ark of God is moving from a temporary to a permanent home at last. When the procession arrives at the temple, the priests carry it inside and they set it here, which is where we noticed last week it sits. In the innermost room of the temple, under the wings of those big golden cherubim that Solomon had built. That's the picture. Then look down to verse 10 of chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. The cloud is a sign of God's presence. He is really there among the Israelites. He really has come down to be with his people. And when we read what God did for Israel, first commissioning Moses way back to build the ark and the tabernacle, then choosing Solomon to build a temple, as we read about that, we are learning something fundamental about God. We're learning he is not content to be a distant God. He is committed to being accessible. He's committed to being with his people. He is God with us. And what we see here in 1 Kings chapter 8 is not the end of it. Because God has gone much further than this. It must have been mind-blowing to be here at the dedication of the temple see and to sense the awesome presence of God on the earth. But hundreds of years later, after Solomon's temple had been destroyed, God did something even greater than this. He came to live not in a temple of stone, but in a temple of flesh. The prophet Isaiah had foretold it. He delivered a message from God. The virgin will conceive. 
and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Through Isaiah, God promised to come much, much closer than he came even here at Solomon's temple. God promised to come as one of us. In the New Testament, the beginning of John's Gospel explains it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on to explain that the Word is God's Son. He's just as much God as the Father is God. He's been with his Father forever. Then John tells us, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In the Old Testament, God showed his commitment to his people by coming in a cloud above the ark. In the New Testament, he showed his commitment by coming as a person. The cloud must have been amazing to see. It said to Israel, I am with you. But how much greater when God takes a human body? Doesn't that say all the more clearly, I'm with you? One of our songs says about Jesus, He walked my road and he felt my pain. Joys and sorrows that I know so well. Jesus knows them too. Please don't think of God as a distant God. He went to great lengths to be with us and to know us. The crowds at Solomon's temple were given a sign of that as the cloud of glory came and filled the temple. You and I have been given an even greater sign. Not a cloud of glory, but Emmanuel, God with us. We're back at the scene in 1 Kings 8. As the glory of God comes and fills the temple, Solomon thanks God. He praises God as the God who keeps his promises. But then Solomon moves on and he begins to pray about the future. And his prayer answers a question that you and I might have. If God is with us, if he's among us, Is he really big enough to be relied on? If he's so involved and so in the middle of things here on earth, can we really be sure he's on top of things when it comes to the universe? If he's on the ground here in Jerusalem, does he have a handle on things up in Damascus? Or down in Egypt? Or Babylon? Or Birmingham? Or Pelsall? Does God have the satellite level view as well as the street level view? Well, the remarkable thing about 1 Kings chapter 8 is that having just celebrated the fact that God is with us, Solomon now prays to God as the one who is also above and beyond us. Look down at verse 27. Solomon pauses in his prayer and he says, 
but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Yet, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, the place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servant, pray towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon has no doubt God has come down to this temple. He really is among his people. But Solomon also knows God is bigger than the four walls of the temple. He knows God has stooped down to be with his people, but that has not restricted God in any way. Where do we see this in the text? Well, eight times in this prayer, Solomon asks God to hear from heaven. Solomon knows the God of Abraham and Moses and David is not some local deity. He is not a limited God. Earth cannot contain him. And neither can the heavens above the earth. In verse 27, Solomon says, the heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain him. In other words, even the universe is too small for you, God. It's true that you're God with us, and it's also true that you're God above and beyond us. And Solomon's understanding of God is consistent with the rest of Scripture. The Bible presents a God who is both imminent and at the same time transcendent. We can truly know him in a personal way, but we will never know him in an exhaustive way. We can truly experience his love and his comfort and his care, but we will never get to the end of his greatness. There will always be some mystery to him. There will always be more than we can see and know of him. And that's a good thing. A God that you and I could fully get our heads round would not be as big as we need him to be. If you and I are going to trust God with our future, if we're going to trust him in our daily trials and temptations, then we need to know he is not tiny and restricted the way we are. When you and I think about the future, don't we need a God who sees more than we do? A God who is more than for, more informed than we are, wiser than we are. And so Solomon gasps with joy as the glory of God comes down and fills the temple. But then he raises his hands toward heaven and he says, Lord my God, hear from heaven your dwelling place. He's saying, I know you're with us and I know you're above and beyond us too. You and I need the same double understanding of God. When we wonder, is God accessible or is he exalted? We need to know the answer is both. 
It's not an either-or situation. When we pray to him, we can be sure he cares. And we can also be sure he is big enough to deal with whatever we might bring to him. You can see that in Solomon's prayer here. He mentions a whole variety of different situations. He believes the God he's praying to is big enough to deal with all of these things and to deal with them appropriately. As we look at these briefly, see if any of these connect with your situation. In verses 31 to 32, Solomon asks God to deal with the liar. When anyone wrongs their neighbor and is required to make an oath, and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. This is a prayer for justice. For the deceiver to be exposed and justice to be done. In verses 33 to 40, Solomon asks God to deal with the repentant person or the repentant people. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their ancestors. Then we're given more examples of repentance. This is a prayer for God to recognize true repentance and to graciously forgive. Then over in verses 41 to 43, Solomon prays for the outsider. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Right from the very beginning of Israel as a nation, all were welcome to come and worship Israel's God. There's never a closed club. The original promise to Abraham said that his descendants would be used by God to bless all peoples on earth. When the Israelites left Egypt, some of the Egyptians traveled with them. When they entered Canaan, some of the Canaanites joined them. Think of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho and her family. And last week we saw how Hiram, king of Tyre, played a big part even in building this temple. There's always been an open invitation to join God's family. The invitation is still open today. And here Solomon prays for the outsiders who will come to Israel's God. He asks God to hear them. And then he asks God to hear the faithful servant. Verse 44. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. In other words, when your people are serving you faithfully, in obedience to your commands, 
They're not running off to do their own thing, but they're going where you send them. Then hear them, God, and uphold their cause. And finally in this prayer, Solomon asks God to hear the captive. Verse 46. When they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land if they're captives, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and pray to you towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. There's no place on earth that's beyond God's reach. There's no captivity God cannot overcome. Whether that's physical captivity, and that's certainly what Solomon is thinking of here. But whether the issue is a different kind of captivity, to some addiction, to some sin that we're enslaved to. God is big enough to break our chains and bring us back home to Him. It's no wonder Solomon brings all these situations to God. Eight times he prays to God here from heaven. He's acknowledging God is big enough for all of these things. He has the knowledge and the power to answer these prayers. A local, limited God couldn't do that. Only a God who reigns from heaven. And today, you and I can approach the same God with the same confidence. That's why the New Testament encourages us to pray, Our Father... In heaven. And that's not because God might not know if we're talking to him or our Father on earth. No, we pray our Father in heaven as a reminder to us that the God we're praying to is above and beyond us. He can cope with our fears and our worries and our trials and our temptations. When we bring them to him, He's got what it takes to forgive our sin or to uphold our cause or to break our chains. We've focused in on a key phrase in Solomon's prayer. That phrase, here from heaven. But you might have noticed there is a second key in this prayer. Because every time Solomon asks God to hear from heaven, every time he also puts a condition on it. He says, when they pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven. The wording isn't exactly the same every time. Sometimes it's when they pray in this temple. But the condition is always there. When men and women focus their worship on this temple, then hear from heaven and answer. That is very significant. 
It's telling us, yes, God is big enough to hear us and respond to us. But he expects us to come to him through the place where he has put his name. The place where he has manifested himself. So if the Israelites decided to pray to the Philistine temple of Dagon, they need not expect God to hear them. If they hung around the temple of the Canaanite god Baal, they need not expect God to hear them. God in heaven must be approached through the place where he has manifested his glory and his presence. God has not manifested his glory or his presence in the temple of Dagon or Baal or any of the other foreign gods around Israel. Solomon understands that. Here in Jerusalem, this is where God has come to earth. This is the place he has condescended to reveal himself. And so this is the only place we can make our appeal to God. It doesn't matter if we're standing right there touching the temple stones. That is not the point. The point is wherever we are on the earth, we approach heaven through the place where heaven came to us. We see an example of that in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Years after this temple dedication, Daniel was an Israelite living in exile in Babylon. But we're told that his daily practice was this. He went to his upstairs room where his windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed. Why was he praying towards Jerusalem? Daniel was acknowledging as he did that that the gods of Babylon couldn't answer his prayer. He prayed towards Jerusalem because that was the place where the true God touched the earth. It didn't matter where Daniel was. It mattered where God had put his name. Prayers of God's people went to heaven through Jerusalem. And today, God's arrangement has not changed. We send our prayers to God, not through Jerusalem, the temple there is long, long gone. We address heaven through the person who brought God's presence to us. Isaiah called him Emmanuel, God with us. John called him the Word become flesh. We know him as Jesus Christ, God's only Son. He is the place where heaven touched earth. Our prayers in his name are welcomed in heaven. And he's our only way to heaven. When you and I think about knowing God and being with God, geography doesn't matter at all. Today, there is no place on the map that's closer to God than any other place. What matters is, are we directing our prayers and our hope and our trust toward Jesus Christ? Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So if you are searching for God, come to Jesus and you'll find him. You will not find him anywhere else. Jesus is unique. There have been lots of teachers and lots of religious leaders throughout history. But only Jesus was God come to earth. Read the New Testament Gospels and see for yourself. God proved Jesus' claims by raising Jesus from the dead. If you're chained down by some sin, turn from your sin to Jesus. He can forgive you and free you. If you're in despair, come to Jesus and you will receive the love and the comfort of heaven. If you're aimless, just wandering your way through life, come to Jesus and he will connect you to the eternal purposes of God. Thank God he is both exalted and accessible. He's both above and beyond us and also with us. He's big enough to be trusted with our joys and our sorrows. And in Christ, he came to experience our joys and sorrows. He knows us, and he knows how to help us. Let's take the opportunity now to come to him together. We're going to do that as we sing together. First of all, a song that takes us through Jesus' life from the squalor of a borrowed stable, and then we'll sing boldly, I approach the throne.